Yep, every time. Uh, well, I uh, we are talking about happiness, and that video makes me happy, and so I don't care. I just thought I'd show it just because I. It makes me happy every time. I keep it on my computer, and every time I'm going through a bad day, I watch people laugh. It makes me happy uh, to see other people laugh. Uh, well, we've been on this journey together learning how to be happy. If you haven't been here the last couple of weeks, uh, uh, I want to encourage you, uh, wherever you you know can get podcasts, you can find our podcast, and uh, I want to encourage you to go check it out. Um, it will be helpful, I think. Um, but um, as we dive into week three, um, we've been in, in this conversation because we, we may talk about happiness and what it is in slightly different terms or describe it in somewhat different ways, but, but there's no denying that happiness is really a universal human pursuit. It, it's something that uh, it touches us all. There's not a single person you will ever meet in your life that's like, I don't want to be happy. I'd rather not be happy. Um, but if that's the case, why does it seem so elusive? Why is it so fleeting? Why, why are there so few of us? I and mean, you saw the, 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 the statistic there on the, the bumper that only 14% of Americans um, say that report that they're happy. I don't, there, oh, there we go. Okay, sorry. I didn't mean to get distracted. I normally am not, but that distracted me. Um, so why are so many of us not only not happy, why are so many of us unhappy? And, and as it turns out, and this has really been the basis for this conversation, is that we are hardwired for happiness, but we keep kind of hitting all the wrong buttons to turn it on. And, and so we don't want to admit it, but at some level, we are our own worst enemy. Because in the end, you and I have done more to undermine our own happiness than anybody else. And you know this, and I know this because, well, you bought it, or you leased it, or you ate it, or you drank it, or you smoked it, or you dated it, or you slept with it, and then you maybe even married it, right? And so whatever it is that's happened to you in your life, you did it to yourself. You are the common denominator in every single event in your life. Now, the good news, and this is where this conversation has been going all along, is that we're not doomed, right? No matter what your baggage, no matter what your DNA, no matter if you're, you know, sort of hardwired towards, you know, predisposed to be happier or not, right? No matter what your choices, no matter what you've done, like there's good ahead for you. That better and healthier and happier is possible, because what we've been discovering together and what we've kind of discovered in our culture is that the, the things that science and psychology are beginning to determine about what actually creates lasting and sort of resilient happiness, that God has actually been telling us those same things in the scriptures from the very beginning. And so in this series, we've been talking about both of them and sort of weaving them together to paint this picture of what it actually looks like to build happiness. And so today I want to talk to you about a happiness secret that you might find a little bit surprising. It's certainly not very intuitive and, and, and might feel a little bit weird, but that, that is the idea of lowering the bar in your life. You want to be happier? Lower the bar. So in our family for, I don't know, the better part of 20 years, we had a tradition on Thanksgiving. For the week of Thanksgiving, we always spent the entire week at Disneyland. 
And uh, it wasn't just a week at Disneyland for us because we went to Disneyland other times, but, but there was something about it being that time of year and the way the park was decorated and it just being the holidays and what it represented in our family because of the tradition. And it, and it just all sort of culminated on Thanksgiving day. And we had all these, you know, after a few years, we sort of figured out what our systems were and all the traditions and the places we went and the things that we would do and the special places we'd go and things that we'd experience. And, and, and a few years ago, we had gone through a couple of years that had been particularly challenging. And there was one year that, that for me personally was the, the, toughest, the toughest year I'd had as a pastor. Like I had, it was the toughest year I'd had as a leader and in my job and in my career. And, and our church that I had been pastoring for uh, quite a few years at that point um, had experienced some crazy growth. And then that growth was followed by some really challenging years and all this like managing people and hiring people and solving problems and dealing with problems. And so I had spent like four, five, six years in a row just pushing harder than I'd ever pushed and working harder and longer than I'd ever pushed just to kind of try to keep it on track and manage all the stuff and take care of it. And, and, and so in this particular year, by the time we got to that time of year, by the time we got towards the end, I was done. I was exhausted. I was spent. And, and so as our tri trip was approaching, I remember feeling like, like I just desperately needed this trip. And it wasn't that I felt like I needed the rest or the time with my family, although those things were important. And for me, I had this feeling, this sense that I just needed the trip to be bigger and better than ever. I needed it to somehow just kind of fix me, to kind of reset all the stuff that was going on in my life so that I could go back and sort of re-engage at the same level that I had been pushing and working at so hard for the last five years. The problem is, is that it didn't come anywhere close to that. In fact, in that particular trip, it was anything but that. And it just seemed like right from the beginning, everything went wrong and the park was extra crowded and there was certain things that were closed or under construction. And the, as the week wore on, I was just getting more and more frustrated and annoyed and just like low-grade angry. angry. And, and, and I'm embarrassed to say, but it, it ruined Thanksgiving Day itself because it kind of culminated on Thanksgiving Day. And I've shared a little bit of this story before, but it culminated Thanksgiving, Thanksgiving evening with me standing in the middle of Disneyland on Main Street, waiting for the Christmas, you know, fireworks and the snow and all that stuff. And, and, and then they decided it wasn't going to happen. It was too windy. And, and so this whole experience culminated with me standing there in the middle of Disneyland on Main Street on Thanksgiving Day, booing Disneyland, just boo, boo. I was so mad. I was just so frustrated. And people are just walking by and I'm just like, and I'm trying to get them to join me. Just like, just boo, this is terrible. What are they doing? And, the, and looking back, honestly, it was a great trip. Like the stuff that went wrong was just little stuff. It was just little annoyances. But in the moment from that trip, I came home feeling like worse than I felt when I left. I don't know if that's ever happened to you where you planned a vacation and you put so much expectation on that trip or that experience because you just wanted it or even maybe even felt like you needed it to deliver something that no matter how amazing it was, it could just never deliver it for you. 
And so there's all this pressure on you and your family. And that happens a lot at Disneyland because you're just like, I spent all this money. You go to Disneyland, you see parents yelling at their kids to be happy all the time because they're just like, you have no idea what this cost me. You will be happy and have fun. You know, but, but you just put all this pressure on your family and then that pressure like sucks all the joy out of the experience altogether. And then when something goes wrong, like it inevitably will, it just kind of ruins the whole thing. I mean, but, but why does that happen to us? Sometimes, and this is kind of the case for me in that trip, it's not that the vacation was that bad, it's that our life is just not that good. And isn't that so often why those experiences happen, why we can be so let down, is because the vacation wasn't just a trip, it was an escape. And we use that language, right? We just need to escape from our life. I absolutely, I love what I do, and so I love work and I love working hard and I love the hustle and grind. But so often in our culture, we have a tendency to kind of just identify goals and then just go after them as hard and as fast as we can and do as much as we possibly can do in pursuit of that thing. And whether it's healthy or not. And so often we end up sort of completely overloaded and burned ourselves to the ground. And then when we're gassed out and we got nothing left, then we decide, okay, it's time for to take it, you know, a three or four day break to the most exotic or the most, you know, the, the place we can afford to go, you know, that we can think of and hope that that three or four days is somehow going to fix everything in our life. And even if everything was exactly perfect, which it won't be, but even if it was, the problem, and you know this, is that it's pretty short-lived. And so we start wondering why we're so unhappy and start planning our next escape. See, there's nothing wrong with productivity and efficiency and achievement. They're, they're great, actually, but they're not that great for building a really fulfilling life on them because there's always a price, you may get a lot of stuff done. You'll probably make a pile of money along the way, but in the end, your life will be wrecked. You'll end up burnt out, exhausted, and miserable. And I think that's one of the reasons why in our culture, we talk about balance all the time and work-life balance all the time. It's just simply because we don't actually know how to build a healthy, happy life. We don't know how to do that. And so... In, re, in response to all of that, there's always been this undercurrent in our culture, but it's maybe bigger now than it's ever been. Because in response to all of that, there's this growing sort of counter reaction where people push hard back against all of that way of living. And their basic attitude is like, man, just you know, stop pressuring yourself. Don't try too hard. Don't work too hard. Maybe not work at all. You know, If you want to be happy, you should just do whatever you feel like, whenever you feel like it. You should just relax. And I don't know, man, just like love your life. There's actually a whole like group, this massive group, this subreddit on Reddit of this group of people that fit into this category. And they call themselves the idlers because they just don't want to work. And it's millions of people in our culture. And honestly, you could almost make the case for some of that from the words of Jesus. I mean, listen to Matthew chapter six, verse 25. It says, so I tell you, don't worry about the food that you need to live and don't worry about the clothes that you need for your body. Life is more important than food and the body is more important than clothes. I mean, look at the birds in the air and they don't plant or harvest or store food in barns but your heavenly father feeds the birds and you know that you're worth much more than the birds and you cannot add any time to your life by worrying about it. And why do you look at, why do you worry about clothes? Look at the flowers in the field, see how they grow. They don't work or make clothes for themselves. But I tell you, 
that even Solomon, with all of his riches, was not dressed as beautifully as one of these flowers. And I think sometimes we can hear that. We're like, oh, I mean, okay, Jesus. All right, so we're not going to worry. We're not going to be anxious. We're just going to try to be present. But, but is Jesus saying that we're literally just supposed to kind of just sit around and like look at the birds and think about the flowers? I mean, that, that kind of sounds more like Jesus was smoking the flowers than looking at them, right? I mean, it just feels like, yeah, man, just love your life. Look at the birds. But then you have verses like this in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. It says, for you know, this is written by the apostle Paul. He's writing a letter to a church that he had helped start. He says, for you know that you ought to imitate us. We were not idle when we were with you. Apparently the idlers have never read this verse. Uh, verse eight says, we never accepted food from anyone without paying for it. And we worked hard day and night. So we would not be a burden to any of you. And then in one of his other letters, check out what he says to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 8. He says, anyone who does not provide for their relatives and especially for their own household has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. I mean, denied the faith, really? That's pretty extreme, right? Like he's going, if you don't work hard, if you don't provide for yourself and the people that God has entrusted to you, like you've basically turned your back on the faith. Wow. And then he says, and, and you're, they're worse than an unbeliever. And He's not insulting unbelievers, okay? What he's saying is that you're worse off than they are because unbelievers don't know, but you know. You do, and you're accountable for what you've experienced and what you know and what you've experienced in God, and you know better. You should know this. And so you're actually worse off than they are because you're actually starting behind where they already are. And so what do we do with all this stuff? What do we do with Jesus and what he says and all the stuff about working hard? How do we fit all this together? Well, the truth is, is that we were made to enjoy both our work and our rest. And that's really been the model that we see in the scriptures from the beginning. I mean, we often talk about work like it's a curse. And even in church, sometimes we talk about like the Genesis story. We, we often talk about, you know, how, you know, work was just this curse of sin, but it wasn't. I mean, you read Genesis chapter one, two, and three, that's not the case at all. It was not a punishment for sin. It was just the opposite. Because when you read the story right there in the middle of paradise, right there in, in, in the picture of God's intention for how things ought to be and the way that things should operate and work, we see God actually giving humans work to do. And it's actually how God operates. In the opening scene, God is working and he works for six days and it was enjoyable and meaningful and it was good. And even though it was all of those things, he still set aside time to rest and observe and enjoy what he had done and what he had worked for. I mean, you don't get the impression when you read the first few chapters of Genesis that God is just kind of grinding it out hating every second of it, working himself to the ground, living, you know, living for the weekend, needing that seventh day just to make up for all the six days that he just couldn't stand. No, you don't get that, you don't get that sense at all. And then when you get to the New Testament, then there's Jesus who lived his life this way. In fact, you when you begin to study and read the life of Jesus, you see that Jesus was constantly at work and working hard and doing the things that God had given him to do. And then he was constantly partying and resting and pulling away and taking time. Like he was constantly moving between and 
enjoying and loving all of it. In fact, in Luke chapter two, before Jesus is even an adult, when he's 12 years old, he goes into Jerusalem with his family and they're there for the, the week of Passover and, and then his family leaves and they don't, they don't realize that he's not with them. And they get halfway home and they realize like we've lost Jesus. And so they go back and they're looking for Jesus and they find him. They don't find him screwing around. They don't find him having a great time. They don't find him partying. And they find him at the temple. And when they ask him like, hey, what are you doing? Like, why weren't you? And he's like, I don't know. Do you guys not realize like why I've come? Like I've can't, I gotta be about my father's business. Like I, I came to get some stuff done. And a few chapters later in Luke 7, all the religious people are accusing Jesus of being a glutton and a drunk and saying he parties too much. In John chapter four, Jesus had been teaching and traveling and baptizing and he actually sits down to rest, but then he ends up getting so engrossed in a conversation and ministering to this lady by this well that he ends up just forgetting even to eat and skips right over lunch. Then on the other hand, in Luke chapter 19, Jesus is hard at work, but then he has this moment where he drops everything to go and spend his day and have dinner with a guy named Zacchaeus. See, Jesus was busy, but he was just never hurried or stressed. He had demands on him being pulled in every different direction, but despite those demands, he was never distracted. And whether he was working or resting, he was fully present, fully engaged, fully alive, fully happy in his life. And then there's this verse in Matthew chapter eight, where people are like, hey, we want to be like you, Jesus. We want to follow you. We want... And he's like, I don't, I mean, maybe, but I don't really have any place to lay my head. I don't own anything. I don't have any money. I don't have a house. I mean, you read about Jesus's life. He had no home. He had no money. He had almost no resource. And yet he was completely happy which is so challenging and difficult for us to understand because we imagine that the pinnacle of happiness would be somebody handing us enough money where we could quit our job and retire to some ocean town somewhere near the beach and then we would post up every day on a white sand beach and just sort of sip pina coladas. Like that would be like, that would be happiness. That's what we imagine. But, but what if it's not? What if it's not? What if that's that scenario? What if that thinking is just us pushing all the wrong buttons in life, hoping somehow they will activate and turn on happiness, but they don't have the ability to do that? In fact, all the data points to the opposite. In all the studying and reading and all the stuff in preparation for this series, uh, there was one study that I came across that I've revisited multiple times. Because I, I, I just can't, it, it's so stunning to me, the results of what these researchers found. Because what they found is that people who were recent active accident victims, who were permanently disabled as a result of the accident that they were recently in, that those people were happier on the whole, in general, than people who had recently won the lottery. And so what they found is that people who had been in an accident and were permanently disabled that they reported getting more enjoyment from their everyday life than people who were lottery winners. And as a result, their levels of happiness in their life were actually higher. No, what we really need is a pile of money. I need to win the lottery. I don't want anybody to get hurt. Just give me a pile of money so I can get out of here and go sit on a beach. And yet for the people that experienced that, 
they're less happy than somebody who'd been in an accident and disabled. So I think our notions about what creates happiness are not even close. We're pushing all the wrong buttons. See, the reality is happiness isn't lucking into a life that you just happen to love. It's actually learning to love the life that you have and that God gave you. It's actually moving into your life and arranging your life in such a way that you find joy and meaning and, and, and purpose in, in your every day. And you don't actually need to go on a vacation every couple of months just to escape your own life. Now, this is bigger than the time that you spend or don't spend at your job or what you do for work. It obviously includes all of that, but this is about us learning how to point our lives at something deeper and bigger and more profound, something that has purpose and meaning. It's about us learning to show up, us being present for and engaged in all of the parts of our life, even the routine, mundane, everyday parts of our life that have to be done. Now, the way that we actually can begin to learn to do that, the way that we actually do that is by slowing down and starting to savor all the good that's in our life already all the little things that are already in our life. Weekends and vacations and time off is great. I love them. But the daily grind of your work week is full of these little gifts, this, the, all this good stuff, all this beauty that God has given you that's just waiting for you to discover and enjoy it and actually savor it a little bit. James, who was the half-brother of Jesus, and he didn't start out as a follower of Jesus because it was his brother. And it wasn't until he saw his brother die and then rise from the dead that he actually became a believer in who his brother was. And so James actually becomes a leader in the early church in the early movement of Jesus. And he wrote a letter and, and, and he wrote these words in James chapter one, verse 17, about the good that's in our lives. He says, everything that's good, every good and perfect gift comes from God. It comes down from above, coming down from our heavenly father, the father of heavenly lights. Right? And so part of this is like, you just gotta, you, sometimes you just have to stop and acknowledge that no matter how dark or how broken or how messed up this particular moment in your life may be, that there's some good in your life. And it's not just the really big, good, you know, the, the really audacious things. There's also just a, a gazillion little good things in your life too. And James says that all of it, all the big stuff and all the little stuff, everything that's good about life, everything that's beautiful, every moment of joy, all of it comes from God because he loves you. See, here's what, here's what I've discovered in my own life. And this is where that whole lowering the bar thing that I started with comes in. The more things you love, the happier you'll be. The more things you love in your life, the happier you'll be. Sometimes we have painted ourselves into a corner where we only have two or three things that we just really love. And it's like, well, you're not gonna be that happy because you only get to do those things, what, every couple weeks, every couple months, but, but if you can actually move your place, move your life to the place where you just, you start loving a lot of different stuff, you're actually gonna enjoy your life a lot more. Whether it's the type of coffee that you drink, right? if you're a coffee snob and you can only be happy if you get that one roast from that one place and it's prepared exactly right, 
right? And if and you just get a, just a kind of a crappy cup of coffee, and you're just like, yeah, it's just I need the drugs, but this makes me angry that I didn't get that, right? But if you're just like, oh, it's coffee, right? So whether it's that or the car that you drive or the mountains around you or the flowers or the trees, the shuffling old guy in front of you at the grocery store, whether it's the, it's not California, Mexican food, Mexican food that you're eating. We have that conversation over and over and over again. Man, it's just not the same. It's not California, Mexican food. Because you're in Idaho. And so even if you go to the place that says California, Mexican food on the outside, it's not the same. But you can still love it. You can love Idaho Mexican food. Whether it's that or the sunrise or the sunset or the laughter of your kids or the, the bustle and energy of the drop-off line at your kid's school. Like you could actually learn to love that, right? You don't have to pull up and just be like, look at this idiot. Because they got out of their car. You know that person. They get out, they pull up and they get out and they're like, hi, honey. Oh, you need me to walk you over there? And you're just like, it's a driveway. What are you doing? Right? And you're just like, I'm going to, oh God, I'm going to blow a gasket if I have to get behind this lady one more time. And then she like gets in her car and she starts to go, oh, the door's not closed. Just open it up. Go around. Just like, you're just like, you're about to twist off in your car, right? But, but if you lowered the bar a little bit, the truth is you could raise the level of happiness in your life. Right? If you began to notice and enjoy and savor all of the good and just wring the good out of every moment, you would actually raise the level of happiness in your life. Because the, and, that, and that is a choice. Right? It's almost rebellious for us in our life, in a way, for us to love our life. Because it's so much easier and it's so much more common, in, especially in our culture, to just sort of be miserable about everything when we don't get our way. Right, to just live our normal day-to-day life and save up all the good living for some other day. But you've been given this beautiful gift of a life. Now, the, the biblical concept, the spiritual concept that we see in the Bible around this is called contentment. And I think that's part of what Jesus was talking about with the whole birds and flowers thing. Is that he was going, look, you want to be happier? You want to enjoy your life? You want to worry less? You just got to slow down. You got to zoom out a little bit. You got to begin to savor all the good that's around you, both the big and the small. Look around you. Because life is pretty good. The Apostle Paul wrote in Philippians chapter four. He says, I rejoiced greatly in the Lord. He was writing a letter to a church that he helped start. He says, I rejoiced greatly in the Lord that you renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. And I'm not saying this because I'm in need, for I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or living in want. I can do all of this through him who gives me strength. And so he says multiple times there, I can be content whatever the circumstances, which is a pretty incredible statement. One of the conversations that I have on repeat, because we moved here, like many of you, we moved here from California, and so we still have a lot of family and friends that are still in California. 
And, um, and inevitably having conversations with them is telling them how much we love it and how glad we are that we're here and how we don't want them to move here because we're full. Like it's full. Idaho's closed, at least to California. But inevitably, the conversation always goes like, I mean, it's so cold there. I don't know how you live there. Like, it's just so cold. Like, it's cold. It's cold. And I'm like, you realize I don't live outside, right? Like, I have a house. Like, I know it's 12 degrees, but I'm not sleeping out there. I'm inside. I have this beautiful house and I have a heater. And if I have to go outside, I put on a coat and some gloves. And I've never been a beanie guy, but I've even been rocking the beanie lately. And part of that's like kind of what Paul's saying is he's going, look, I've decided that you keep complaining about the conditions, but that's not where I'm living. I don't live in the conditions that are out there because what's going on in here, this is where I live. And in here, I'm warm and cozy. It might be cold out there. It might be miserable out there. But in here, you don't understand what's going on in here. This is where I live. You know what? I know how I can be content and happy and warm, you know, to, to beat this metaphor up a little bit more when it's freezing outside because that's not the condition that's going on for me. That's not what I'm experiencing in my life. He's going, happiness is not circumstantial. It's not conditional. And I think part of what he's talking about, because he, he cites all these times in his life where he, was, he, had it, he had it all and then he had nothing. He had more than he could eat and bear and deal with. And then he had experienced going hungry. And part of this reality of learning how to be happiness or how to be happy and experience happiness is just recognizing that everything in life is interim. He's going, I've got good news and I've got bad news and it's the same news. And that's this, that it's all temporary. Every good season that you think is stable and you're somehow hoping and believing will last forever, it won't. Every period that's difficult and painful and a struggle that feels like it will never end, it will, because everything is interim. But when you decide to journey with God, you can actually begin to find and discover and build the conditions in your life for happiness, no matter what season you're in. And you'll know that whether you are in need or you have plenty, whether you're well-fed or you're a little bit hungry, that God is present with you, that there's beauty and good and joy and happiness to be had. And that right now, whatever this season is, is only preparing you for what's next. A couple of years ago in 2020, we were at home one day and I walked in on my son, Kelton, and um, he was upset and trying to figure out why. He's seven now, but he was five then. And um, I mean, there's not really a good reason for a five or six-year-old to really be upset and have a bad day. I mean, really, you got everything you need. You got all the food you want. You have this beautiful place that you live. You got your friends and your brothers. You got more toys than you know what to do with. You got more Legos than any human should be allowed to have. And so I just went out, I'm like, dude, all right, what's going on? Why are you upset? Why are you having a bad day, buddy? And he just looked at me with these big, sad eyes, and he said, Daddy, 
I will not be happy again until we are in Hawaii and I'm sitting by a pool eating an icy. I was like, wow, I mean, that is very specific. And, and it didn't hit me at first, but then he went on. He's like, coronavirus has ruined everything. I'm like, you're right about that part, all right? And, and I realized he was upset because like a lot of people in 2020, we ended up having to cancel a fantastic vacation we were planning that summer um, because of everything that was going on in the world. And so he was really, really upset that he couldn't be in Hawaii sitting by the pool eating a shaved ice. And so he and I sat and talked a little bit about disappointment and what he was feeling. But here's the truth. Like we don't say that out loud because, well, we know how that sounds. But so many times in our lives, we act and say the same thing to ourselves. I'm not going to be happy unless. I won't be happy until. I'll be happy when. When I live there or I marry her or we do this or we move over there or I get that promotion. This is what it looks like. This is what happiness looks like. And I'm not going to be happy until that. But happiness is actually not a destination, right? That's what the Apostle Paul is saying. It's a decision that you actually make every single day of your life. It's a celebration, not for the life that you want, not for the life that you hope you have, not for this one day, someday. It's a celebration of the life that you actually have. See, because if we're not careful, we can have our lives become one long, uninterrupted tantrum about the life that we're just not able to live or the life we wish we could live. What's interesting is neuroscience is actually telling us that, okay, there's a difference between your brain and your mind, right? Your brain is a physical organ that resides in your head. Your mind is your thoughts, attitudes, and feelings. Your mind is you. It's what you think about and what you feel and what you decide and the attitude that you adopt. And you can't separate them, but they are different. They're not the same thing. And so what neuroscience is actually telling us is that your brain, the physical organ in your body, changes based on the kinds of thoughts that your mind feeds it, right? It's constantly rewiring itself so that when you complain or when you gossip or when you worry or when you make excuses or when you just go, I won't be happy until or I can't be happy unless, your brain starts looking for things to be upset about, starts looking for all the bad and all the negative that's going on in your life, regardless of how great your life is, regardless of the circumstances, but the opposite is actually true too, that when you choose joy, when you choose to slow down and savor a moment, when you choose to give thanks, when you choose contentment, that your brain starts rewiring and is able to begin to identify opportunities and abundance and love and all this and joy and peace and all this stuff that's around you, again, regardless of your circumstances, so that no matter how difficult or how painful or what the struggle is that you're going through, that your brain can actually pick out like, oh man, isn't it awesome? Even though you got stuck in that line at drop off, you got a coffee in your hand. Your brain starts to actually pick up on and feed you. Like, look at that. Look at all this good stuff. See, happiness, as it turns out, is much more like a muscle. And every 
time you take delight, every time you find joy, every time you look for and savor the good, every time you choose contentment, that muscle gets bigger and stronger and more resilient. I think that's why the Apostle Paul used the word learn two different times in just those three verses where he was talking about contentment and happiness because it's something we learn. It's realizing that the story of your life could be told a thousand different ways. And you can choose to tell it as a tragedy or you can choose to call it an epic and see that this part of the story, no matter how grim or how dark or how much suffering, that's not the only part of your story. And when you're able to begin to shift that and begin to exercise that muscle, that's when all the joy and the celebration and the happiness and the contentment actually begin to fill your life. By the way, I think one of the reasons, especially in our culture, that we push back on contentment is it feels like settling. Like, I think there's something in us, even when I talk about lowering the bar, we're like, we don't lower the bar in our culture. We raise the bar, man. Like, raise it. Like, no, what's wrong with you? And part of the reason why we think that is because we associate contentment with settling, but it doesn't mean that at all. I mean, Romans chapter 12, I want you to see this. I want you to see how the apostle Paul weaves all this stuff together. So in verse nine, he says, your love must be real. Hate what is evil. Hold on to what is good. Okay, so there's there's some good stuff in your life. Grab onto it, hold onto it. Love each other like brothers and sisters. Give your brothers and sisters more honor than you want for yourself. I mean, this is all good relational stuff. Don't be lazy, but work hard. I mean, that doesn't feel like it fits. Serve the Lord with all of your heart. Be joyful because you have hope. Be patient when trouble comes pray at all times. And so Paul's like going back and forth between both sides of this thing. And he's going, hold on to the good because there's a lot of good, but also work for more good. Be happy and joyful about your life, but also like realize that life's not perfect. He's going, even as you're holding on to the good, work to make things even better. See, because contentment isn't the opposite of ambition. Apathy is the opposite of ambition. And, And so how can you tell if you're content or if you've settled well, a couple ways, really. Contentment will bring you peace. Settling will bring you regret. Contentment will make you thankful. Settling will make you unthankful. Contentment will allow you to be happy for the good that happens for other people. Settling will just make you jealous of the good that happens for other people. Contentment will work to make the world better, but settling just gives up. Contentment makes us secure, but settling makes us insecure. Contentment remembers all the good that God has done. Settling is just like, yeah, but there's this one thing you didn't come through for me on, God. Contentment doesn't need anything else to be happy, but settling always needs more. And so when you read these letters from the apostle Paul, there's this odd paradox of like, man, I'm perfectly happy with where I'm at and what I have and the good that I've been given. But also I love working toward making the world and better and myself better and my family better. And even if it all doesn't work out or produce the kind of results that I'm hoping for, I'm still going to be completely happy because I already have more than I need. I don't need to escape my life because I'm living it and I enjoy it just the way that it is. 
the, it honors God for you to love the life you get, he gave you and not spend your life wishing he had given you a different one. You don't have to wait for some other day for the good life. You can choose to begin living the good life right now. And so what if this week you decided that you were going to be present for, you were going to, you, your mind, you were going to make the decision to think about, look for, be present for, and savor and enjoy all the little everyday things, all the little good gifts God has given you in your life, the things that you normally would just take, typically take for granted. What if you decided that you were going to just slow down and look around and stop waiting for one day, someday, to actually be happy because you know what that thing that we do where I won't be happy until or I won't be happy unless we can actually do the thing on the other side I'm happy now I'm happy that I'm happy because and you'll be surprised how much joy and contentment and happiness begins to fill your life when you choose to love the life you have all month long, we've been kind of landing at this idea that ultimately this conversation begins with a relationship with Jesus. And I, I can't help but have us land there every week because here's the truth. No matter what you believe about God, you can take this stuff and you can go put it into your life and begin to practice it and it will help you. There's no doubt about it. You don't even have to tell people you learned about it at a church or you read it in the Bible. You can just be like, yeah, man, like it's the latest, greatest thing. You choose to be happy. Even though it's like thousands of years old. <laughs> but the truth is, is like there's nothing that's going to satisfy that longing or that thirst. There's nothing that's going to bring that deep soul level, life level satisfaction, like stepping into a relationship with the God who created you. But by then by coming to Jesus and just saying, I give you my life, then by stepping into a relationship with the person who is joy and is love and is grace and is hope and is peace and is happiness. And so wherever you're at, if you've never made that decision, I'm gonna pray here in just a second. I just wanna invite you as I'm praying that you have your own conversation with God and you just say, God, Jesus, I give you my life. As fully as I know how to do that, I give you my life. And, and even if you've prayed that prayer before, or even if you're a person of faith, um, maybe today's a great day to just revisit this conversation about where happiness begins. Let's pray together.